Welcome everyone. Thank you so much for coming. My name is William Edelglass. I serve as Director of Studies here at the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies in Barry, Massachusetts. And I am so glad to be with you all and especially with Willa and Martin. Um, before I introduce Willa and Martin, I wanna say a few things about um, how this morning will unfold. And what we're gonna do is start with a little bit of guided embodied meditation. We'll have a conversation with Willa and Martin and I might ask a few questions. Then we'll have another guided meditation and then we will open up a question and answer period. And at any time, at any point during the conversation, before the Q&A or during, you should feel free to um, click on the Q&A button at the bottom of your Zoom bar and pose a question there. Also, if you would prefer to have a live transcript of what is being said, so you can read it on the bottom right of the Zoom bar, it says CC, and there's a little button. And if at any point you have any questions about anything that's going on technical, not content, you should feel free to send an email to contact at buddhistinquiry.org. And thank you to Julia and Cassie and Sarah for addressing those issues. Um, okay, so I'd like to say a few words about Martin and Willa. When Martin was 19, at a very young age, he went to India and spent the next five years in retreat centers and ashrams and monasteries, mostly in India and Thailand, including two years with a teacher in a hermitage in the Himalayas, um, doing a variety of different practices, different lineages. And when he came back to Europe, ended up settling in France where he has run a Dharma center with his wife and a friend um, in the Dordogne in Southwest France. And if you are looking for one of the most beautiful Dharma centers in the world, that would be a good place to go. It seems so lovely, the river, gorgeous buildings and gardens. Willa is, Willa Baker is the author of several books and the founder of the Natural Dharma Fellowship and Spiritual guide there and also of Wonderwell Mountain Refuge, another gorgeous, wonderful retreat center that looks up at these beautiful mountains of New Hampshire. She is the author and translator of several books and I think spent about 12 years in monastic training, including doing two consecutive three-year retreats. And from my own embodied and visceral experience, I know what a wise an insightful and wonderful teacher Willa is. So I'm so glad and grateful that the two of you are here to explore embodied awareness. And Willa, maybe you could begin by leading us in a meditation. Thank you. Thank you, William. And 
So glad to be here with all of you and with Martin. Thank you. Yeah, so we thought we'd start with just some settling practice this morning before we get into conversation to begin with grounding in the body. So I invite you at home to settle onto your seat for a few minutes of practice. And begin by dropping down from the thinking mind into the feeling body. And to help yourself with that dropping, you might think of your attention or this thing that we call mind as a handful of salt. And your body like a vase of warm water. And you release that handful of salt, your mind, into the vase of warm water, your body. And feel your mind dissolve all over the body. a diffuse all-over-body awareness. Feeling the heaviness, the weight, the body, its groundedness. The aliveness of your senses right here right now.
so much, Willa. We invited Willa and Martin to have this conversation because they have both published really beautiful books, wonderful books on the role of the body, the role of body in Buddhist practice, an awakened body, somatic mindfulness. And one of the characteristics of both of these books is that the authors have woven stories, especially stories of their own lives into their explorations of the place of the body. And Martin, I wonder if we could start with you, if you would be willing to share a little bit about your own trajectory and some of the story, a story of how you came to the place where you recognize and explore the place of the body in practice. Sure, so hello everyone, firstly, it's nice to be here. Very nice to just to be led into our meeting by Willa's such kind of steady and embodying guidance. And, and then with your question, William, it reminds me really of the way in which when I started practicing and being in Asia in these various monastic settings or, or with my teacher in the mountains, you know, I didn't know what was going on with my teachers when they were meditating, right? Just sitting like this, no idea what's going on. But I could see more of what was going on in the other moments. And one of the things that was very touching to me, and I think I probably described some aspect of this in my book, was the way, and I don't know why it's this particular image, but the way my teacher would take the jar off of the tea. Uh, take the lid off of the tea jar. Or the way he would add a piece of wood to the fire. And there was something in a quality of care and attention or caring attention that that made the most ordinary of moments or the most ordinary of activities feel sacred somehow. And it was very, very touching, very impactful for me. That sense of not just how to meditate, but the real sense of actually an invitation to, to learn how to live. And that was in kind of stark contrast to what I often noticed with my peers and other people I was hanging out with in these places and practicing together. And then it's like the bell rings, the meditation ends, and despite the encouragement to be mindful, it turns out go forth and be mindful isn't enough of an instruction. <laughs> I mean, it's a good instruction, but it's not full enough for how to take presence of meditation into these other moments and so I found I just I wanted myself to be interested in how I you know did my whatever my equivalent was of unscrewing the jar of tea and this sentence of the Buddhas kept coming back to me right? the whole universe arises and passes right here in this body and so the sense of just the wish to to enter into experience rather than be mindful i found that construction right to be mindful of experience just didn't seem like a good fit for me 
And so I, I want a, a language of oh, entering into experience, being intimate with experience, sensing experience from the inside. That kind of language just felt a lot more alive and, and rich. And so that's where the interest to both to practice in that way and, and then to express teachings uh, in a way that really centers this kind of embodied awareness where that came from. So just to, um, yeah, I feel this resonance uh, with what you're saying, Martin, about how uh, in my early days also there were teachers that I met who it wasn't, the teaching wasn't so much about what they said as it was about how they were, their energy was expressing itself through their embodiment. And I think uh, back then, I didn't have the language, you know, in my 20s, early, <laughs> early days, how to express um, what I was experiencing with those teachers. I would kind of, my language felt like it fell short. But now looking back, these teachers were teaching me through their bodies. It was like there's another language that was being spoken, so to speak, spoken, a non-conceptual language of embodiment. And that was so impactful and still continues to be impactful um, for me. I think what brought me to, to the body to uh, eventually write uh, this book um, was the, uh, realization at a certain point in my life, maybe after 15, 20 years of practicing pretty intensely, that in some ways, my practice had become mentalized. And even though I had teachings and instructions on, uh, you know, for example, in, in, in retreat settings, how to do yoga, as a liberating practice. So the Tibetan tradition has a yogic dimension to it where we actually learn all kinds of bodily routines. Uh, it's very, it Hatha yoga essentially. And that, and that these Hatha yoga exercises, you could become liberated doing any one of them. Even that notion was there in the tradition is so exciting for me at the time. But still, even with that, these words, like, like you were saying, mindfulness, attention, awareness, um, nature of mind, being a Westerner and being brought up with this notion that the mind somehow unconsciously, the mind is actually the brain, you know, not, not really consciously thinking that, but that the mind somehow is from here up. And, and so hearing these words that are meditative words, mindfulness, nature of mind, still my, 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 grasping onto this notion of mind and 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 since subtly my practice kind of from here up you know that that actually what i'm realizing is either out there somewhere in space or in the stratosphere or what we're trying to embody is somehow up here and it has to do with our ideas about things and actually what is being pointed to 
is is this all over um, bodily experience. It so includes and is grounded in our senses and in the feeling body and interoception. So yeah, so what brought me to this book and in my whole practice, we did this loop kind of away from the body and then back home to the body. So so yeah, a very much grounded in personal experience, like like with you, like with you too, Mart. Yeah. Mm. yeah, I love that uh, that image you used in the meditation of a handful of salt dissolving into the the vase of bodily water, and. And likewise, when you were just describing there, it's like I, I have the, it's sort of like a memory headache of that way of practicing, right? When it's sort of all, all, <laughs> all going on up here. And in my, you know, sincerity of wanting to practice well and sincerely, it was like, you know, I was meditating hard. I was meditating here. And whether it, the, the, the idea of trying to concentrate the mind, oh dear, no wonder that gave me a headache, you know, because it's it's sort of like, as if trying to squeeze out these other elements of experience. And it's not that the that, that is so much there in the teachings I received, it's more like you say, this equation, as soon as we say mind, or even consciousness, right? We nevertheless, even though we know it's not true that our consciousness doesn't live in this little box here, we, we, the, the tendency to relate into it in that way is so strong, right? And, and therefore the tendency to, to, to have a, at least a subtle level of tension infusing one's practice, right? And conversely, I, increasingly, the quality of relaxation, like for me, quality, relaxation is like the most exquisite, sublime, profound quality. And I often hear meditation teachers somewhat indignantly saying, you know, well, meditation's about a lot more than just relaxation. And I think, well, really? Because <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> actually, just that sense of actually the softening. You know, relaxation is profound. Relaxation is infinite, in my experience. And it's not just, of course, a muscular relaxation. There's all kinds of subtleties of relaxation that come online. And yet we have the associations, and for anybody listening, you might just think, the usual ways we know to relax involve some kind of going unconscious, right? We relax, you know, by watching TV. We relax by having a few drinks. We relax by taking a nap. And so relaxation sometimes doesn't seem like a good fit for people in meditation because the idea is, oh, if I relax, I space out. And conversely, we have associations with focus of being, you know, tense in some way. Like I'm saying, trying to meditate. And yet, what we both in our, in our different ways, and we were saying earlier how, how much we both appreciate the parallels of the way we've approached this in the book, finding a way actually relaxation supports, like you rest into the fact that you're here. You're already aware. You're already awake. You don't need to do something to be awake awareness so that re relaxation actually supports a natural clarity and then the natural clarity allows you to recognize whatever tensions may still be there and relax and so then there's this actual this kind of co-support of clarity and relaxation clarity relaxation so i was so excited when 
I'm just going to show the people that are here your book for a second. So your book arrived from France. <laughs> so that's also exotic to my to my little mailbox in New Hampshire, and um, and to 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 see how soon in the book you got to relaxation, and I also have felt that is a key element that actually we're all trying too hard on the cushion. If we're trying at all, we're trying too hard. And um, so one thing that really struck me was how, how you went right to relaxation. And it reminded me of this, of this moment in my life, maybe about seven years ago when I was invited to a Zen center in Boston, and I went to teach uh, just just one just one time, and the essentially the whole meditation practice was about deep relaxation, and and then later I gave a little talk, and the main thing I was talking about is that if you relax, everything you need will come will be there. You don't have to try at all. And one of the people at the end of the Q and A raised their hand and they said, I've been here for 10 years at the Sendo and I've never heard that word in this room. And I was like, what? <laughs> so, you know, I think we, we don't always know that it's it, that we don't have, always feel like we have permission that we do. We have permission to relax. And, and there's this kind of unwinding, this natural unwinding that happens in the body and somehow the body already knows. The body already knows how to be awake and how to be aware. All the things that we think of as enlightenment, the body is already expressing. And and you use this word um, in early on in your book here, embodied presence. And and so our body already has embodied presence. Or in in my book, I used a similar kind of word, a phrase. I found a similar phrase to, to replace mindfulness. But I, I, what I chose was somatic mindfulness. And I, even I struggled with that as the word. You used embodied presence. I struggled with it because it still has the word mindfulness in it. But I wanted to put it there because I didn't want people who were mindfulness practitioners to dismiss that your mindfulness is this thing that we so want, mindfulness is already happening. It's it's already present in your body. You just need to pay attention or to listen. I, I loved the term embodied presence in your book. And I felt like that really captured very well um, this notion that the body is already, like you were just saying, it, we don't need to try. The body's already expressing what, what it is that we're searching for. It's happening now. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because... I mean, let's face it, the, the horse has bolted or whatever the expression is. It's too late now for, to, to try and contain the word mindfulness, right? It's out there in the culture. But it is a little unfortunate in some way because it's, it, it, it supports what is already our tendency, right, to be disembodied in some way. And then, and again, people listening to this might ask themselves, what, you know, what's your basic assumption that you have about being mindful and it might be for example the assumption that one's mind is here and doesn't move but that's you know that's a hopeless task the nature of mind is to move your mind will be moving much of the time so how about relaxing about what your mind's doing relaxing into the fact that you're already here 
and tasting that quality of presence, sati, usual translation, mindfulness, tasting that quality of presence by virtue of just the way you're feeling your arms and your legs. And hey, let's include just right now, while we're speaking and while you're listening, right? So that rather than just listening, you know, mentally and trying to understand, to listen from a place where you just relax into being here. And we give ourselves, okay, we might firstly notice layers of tensions, right? And if you're if you're standing or sitting or walking, you know, you need some tension to do a bit of that. But a lot of the time, as you come inside, you will notice some tensions that are unnecessary and unhelpful. Right? Maybe around here or in your jaw or your shoulders. And just, oh, just softening a little the unnecessary and unhelpful tensions that we find. And there, like you say, um, Willa, in terms of the body already knows, we get a visceral taste of, oh, of something that's liberating. You don't have to put a capital L on that liberation, right? But just, oh, the actual freeing in the moment, in a simple but tangible way of well, just being here a little more fully, a little more fluidly. And, and to somehow keep faith with that, just keep coming to and coming in, and just keep sensing and softening, sensing and softening. And it seems to me that, that has, that's potent and has much more to do with what's called mindfulness than, than the forcing our mind to be in some kind of you know, present moment, which, which often has an attempt to contain or control or to hold the mind in a way. And your mind is uncontainable, or at least I'll speak for myself, my mind is uncontainable. <laughs> I love that. I, yeah, so, it's so like, I have a question for you. Oh, go ahead. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm I'm interesting. You know, when you said we both were saying how we felt our teachers were, you know, beyond the helpful instruction and guidance we may have received. That sense of your teachers teaching through their own embodied presence that relaxed presence you know it was very very potent for me being around people who i could just i could see and feel they were they were kind of loose in themselves and so that association of freeness as belonging to a kind of ease ease and they may have been actually you know in quite a lot of discomfort in various ways but nevertheless the bodily sense of ease pervading that whatever the discomfort or illness etc that may have been there and so I'm wondering, in, in your role as teacher, you know, because we're in the same situation, right? In some ways, we're giving people practices and teachings to do, but there's also there's, there's something else that's going on in the teaching. And I don't know how much you can articulate that, but I'm, I'm curious how you, how you bring that nonverbal sense of, of communicating embodied presence in the, in the way you are with students. That's a really good question. Yeah, I think for myself, I, I need to be in my own practice to be a good teacher. So, I mean, that's a broader principle. So, um, before I teach, just doing what I just did with, with, with all of you, 
coming down from whatever ideas I have about what I'm going to say. You know, as a teacher, we want to plan. We want to have a, a we want to have a teaching plan, and you know, I'm going to cover this point and this point and this point. And I actually like having those plans sometimes because it gives you a it, it gives me a, a scaffolding in which to relax. But ultimately, when I teach the Dharma, I start with practicing myself, whether or not I'm uh, doing that sitting before I go into the meditation hall or um, being on the seat and coming down from the thinking mind into the feeling body and getting into that same place of embodied presence, to use your word, or um, maybe a place of deep trust and surrender. You know, you were talking about, as a teacher, we often want to control what's going to happen. You know, we want to control the situation. As a teacher, as a human being, forget being a teacher, right? As a human being, we often are um, drawn to, 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 to the idea that we want, we want and can control what's going to happen, or we feel responsible to control it. But actually, there's another model which we are, which we have, you have definitely described here, and I have tried to describe here, and that model is a model of surrender, a model of deep trust in the power of embodied presence to do the liberating for me or to do the teaching for me, that I can ask the embodied presence to teach. Um, sometimes in, in our practice, and you're sure in yours as well, that takes the form of trusting lineage. Like I trust the lineage to express itself through my embodied presence. And that takes the self out, like, or at least conceptually allows myself, myself to step aside and to not feel like it has to take control of the situation. And just to see what happens when I ask myself this, this thing to be a transparent, a transparent uh, channel for what's going to come through embodied presence. How about you? How do you take this, Martin, from your practice into teaching? What do you do as your technique? Um, I, I, I wouldn't really describe it. I don't have a technique really for that. But I guess the process of it is, is just hanging out. I mean, my own practice with that is to hang out in or hang out as embodied presence, you know, in a way that just runs through everything or at least wants to run through everything. And, you know, I'm reminded of some old Zen story, I think, where somebody has some great enlightening experience and then goes to see the teacher to tell them about it. And when they get there to tell their teacher about their great experience, the teacher says, oh, which, when you came in to see me, which side of the door did you leave your shoes, left or the right? And the person doesn't know. I can't, I can't remember. They were so full of their liberating experience. So the teacher just sends them, <laughs> sends them, I don't want to hear about your liberating experience, you know, <laughs> until you know where you're leaving your shoes. And I loved that story. And I check, you know, myself sometimes when I'm at home. How exactly, not just oh by the front door, but exactly where and how did I leave my shoes when I came indoors? Just to check, because if I don't know, 
where the hell was I? What was I doing when I came in the door? You know? And so that sense, not just in teaching, but in, in anything and everything, of the willingness. And of course, when one gets then caught up in some thought stream, and sometimes it's appropriate, right? It's like sometimes where my shoes are is not the most important thing. Often, the sense of just how one's moving through the day and what's going on in a very simple way it re is really deserving of a care and an attention and a, a salt melting, like you were describing, that we don't give it enough. And so I'm, I'm often sort of extra aware of that if, if I'm walking to the Dharma Hall to teach and just listening to the sound of feet on gravel and then taking off the shoes and the, the feel of the door handle and going in and then the bowing to the shrine. And it's like, oh, just coming into the naturalness of things. And when you spoke about trusting embodied presence to do the teaching, you know, that sense to come into that there's a sort of happening by itself, just the autonomic nature of breathing and heart beating and the way that, look, hands move. I mean, the, the fact that all this is happening without any need for me to get involved with managing or organizing it. And in fact, the more I try to manage and organize it, the more a mess I make of it. And so, Oh, that happening by itself. And we get a chance to taste that with breath in meditation, for example. But the, when you can extend that, right, when you're walking, oh, walking happens by itself. And then even in speaking, you know, so the more we add layers of complexity, the more we get convinced that I'm the one doing it. Like, like I've got to think of something to say. But actually, like right now, I don't know what's coming out next, right? So we just... You stay and you settle and you sense and you gonna and you trust in the sort of this this autonomic nature until we start to taste a way in which everything can happen by itself. You know, I can get less and less and less involved and give up on my own foolhardy attempts to manage things and rather you know like trust in in the sort of the the yeah the intelligence of the Dharma we could say or the intelligence of life. Like the fact that we don't need to get it anywhere near as involved as we think we do. And of course, in the privilege of the teaching seat, that can become very, very apparent. So, yeah. I was just listening to you talk, also being reminded of what a challenge in the very beginning of the pandemic, even pre-pandemic, with this emergence of technologies, uh, Dharma and technology coming together, I was so challenged at first by um, speaking Dharma in this disembodied way through, it felt, you know, at first, speaking into a lens or speaking into a screen. And oh my goodness, you know, I, I froze, I don't know how it was for you, but that sense of embodied presence without the bodies of others in the room, at first my body and my, I mean, it took me, I think years to get over my self-consciousness with mm -hmm. relating to technology. So not like it isn't challenging to, to actually access embodied presence in some contexts. For some of us, it's really challenging. And uh, so that's been such a learning curve, but 
now, right, I feel your embodied presence. You're in France and I'm in New Hampshire and everyone else here on the screen is from all over the world. And yet somehow we've managed or I've managed to, 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 to trust, I think it's the trust, right? Surrendering to the fact that these, those, all of these, our embodied presences are together beyond time and space somehow we're, we are, we have come together and I can trust in that. And that allows me to contact it, this sense of this embodied presence again. Um, and I wanted to ask you a question too, um, Martin. One of the things that really intrigued me about your book and that was very different, different and yet the same between our two books is, you know, uh, as soon as you come down into the body, as you know, you encounter the entire mess and chaos of your life. So it's not like just coming down into the body. Oh, now I can be awakened. I've got embodied presence. Now everything is good. More like you encounter the full mess when you come down into the body, the full entanglement of our humanness, including all of our emotions and our drives and our needs and our fears. It's all right here, right now. And one of the ways you expressed that in the book was through this, um, or one of the ways you, you the, your doorway in was by talking about the drives, the instinctual drives, the drive, the drive to survive, the instinct to survive. You talked about three, um, the, the instinct to survive, the instinct to procreate or the sexual sex drive, and then the instinct, uh, to, to succeed, um, or to have, um, power maybe, or social, social instinct. Yeah. You talked about it as maybe the social instinct and sort of its darker side as the need to have power control. And I found that totally fascinating. And I wondered what drew you into that, into that space of, of looking at the drives and, and how have you worked with them? In, in my own case, it's been more around the energy of emotion. And that's how I approached it in my book. Um, go ahead, you start. Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, I, f I find those drives really interesting because they're just so hardwired, right? And they're, they're, they're really primary. Like we just have a survival drive and a sex drive and a social drive. We just, we just do, right? So underneath, and those things are a little bit underserved often in Buddhist teachings. You know, I came from this Theravadan background. Sex is really underserved in Theravadan teachings. And actually in most spiritual or religious teachings, there's some idea that there's a renunciate ideal. So ideally, let's just avoid it altogether. And if you're not going to avoid it, we'll just align with the general, okay, we'll have some sort of lifelong monogamous relationship and don't talk about it too much. And that'll be the second best ideal. And that's it's just not good enough for how, what a potent force it is. So, actually explore them in the book from different angles but if I want to say a little bit I, I think because even though we've all got all these drives and we can all recognize them we can also find the primary one that animates us and it especially comes out actually when those things aren't a biological imperative 
Like I would imagine that most people listening to this, the biological imperative to survive, you know, hasn't kicked up today, right, or yesterday even. That you haven't been so hungry and not had anything to eat, or so cold and not been able to clothe yourself, etc. Of course, there are a lot of people for whom those are daily realities. And that's why we need those drives, right? Because otherwise we wouldn't have made it as a species without them. But when the basic necessities are met, that's when it becomes really beholden to us to explore how the drives still act out. So the survival drive tends to act out in a kind of inner loop of self-concern. What do I need, right, to be comfortable, to be okay? The kind of the concern for comfort and security. What do I need? What do I need? So it's me trying to get what I need to f for me to feel okay. It's like a loop of self trying to reassure or self, self trying to make self feel better. The sexual drive is more self and another. Will you do it for me? Can, can, can you make me okay? And so that may be or may not be connected to sex itself, but it's more the fixation on a significant other that I need you to give me what I need. And so distinct from the survival drive where I'm trying to make myself feel okay, the sexual drive, I'm trying to get you to make me feel okay. And then the social drive is more just like the relationship to the world. My team, others, uh, do I have their approval? Do I have their attention? You know, are they kind of going to feed me with enough sense of, uh, yeah, attention and approval mostly that, to give me the sense that I'm okay? And there's lots of different ways to explore each of those, but I think it's helpful. It was certainly helpful for me to just, oh, to work out my primary driver, which for me is the social drive, right? And then, oh, my partner. The survival drive is primary for her. And then when we look back in our own histories growing up, it's like, oh, it makes sense why those became our distinct drivers. And so there's a lot of, lot of ways of working with that, not so much just in thinking about the patterns, but in this embodied sense, just seeing where do I go when I start to feel deficient in some way, where do I go to try to reassure myself or to get some kind of... Uh, yeah, to regulate. Right? So the survival type is more likely to withdraw to regulate. The social type is more likely to go out to regulate. The sexual type is more likely to kind of, you know, to fixate on what the other is thinking of me or what I need from the other to regulate. So I just found there's a lot of, there's a lot of ways of, of understanding and managing our own, particularly the deficient states that arise through that model of looking at the different drives. And maybe conversely then, Willow, you could say something about the emotional life and how you've been exploring that in terms of just in an embodied exploration. Well, <clears throat> what I so appreciated about your, your bringing the drives into your book was how you um, normalized the drives as a part of being human as opposed to, oh, this is the, you know, in Buddhism, we can really get into this idea that the needs and desires and um, fears and, um, and, and, and the absolute, you know, this, this, this animal instinct to connect, 
that somehow those are weaknesses or foibles because the Buddha taught, um, and this is such a simplification, I, I think now is a complete oversimplification of what the Buddha meant, that at the basis of our suffering is Trishna, right? This thirst to become, and that that has to be somehow uprooted. Now, I, I suspect now myself as a, I don't know, I mean, who am I to say? I'm a, <laughs> I've been practicing a long time, but, where where that has brought me back to, and also in in connection to my trust and surrender to the body, is that our task in the Dharma is not to um, sort of refine or to somehow make ourselves into better humans um, or into some not to transcend. Our task is not to transcend. Our task is to accept the full fullness of our humanness and to skillfully channel our very natural animal selves into um, channel the energies of that natural animal self into the best possible outcomes for ourselves and others. And it's not about rejecting those drives. So. I really enjoyed that part of your book and how you just brought that in. In my own case, um, I spent many years thinking uh, or, or rather puzzling over how some dimensions of the Buddhist tradition seem to be um, talking about uprooting the kleshas, these, these, these five poisons, five poisons of and desire and aversion and ignorance and uh, envy and and um, uh, um, um, depending on which classification you're looking at, greed uh, or whatever else the fifth one might be. Um, but but wanting to this the the tradition seeming to talk about uprooting this word uprooting these kleshas in order to experience the bliss and the peace of nirvana. But actually, other parts of the tradition talking about that's exactly the wrong approach, that all of these five kleshas are actually secretly five wisdoms. And that if you, the only doorway that you can really walk through is the doorway of beginning to see their other side of these kleshas as um, being naturally wakeful, that they are naturally wakeful. And that our problem with the kleshas is just involvement of the ego and, and othering and is largely the conceptual side of the emotion, not the emotion itself. And so for myself, that my path has been about learning to love all of those emotions. And because they're, they're, they're lodged in the body, we live in an animal body, those emotions are going to happen. So I have been working myself over time to accept that that's a part of my being human. And, and now that that's a part of my being human, now how can I encounter these in a way that is, is more compassionate and curious mm -hmm. rather than demonizing and suppressing? Yeah, much more relaxing, much yeah. more, you know, just, just uh, relieving to feel like I can inhabit my humanness rather than trying to put it away in some way. And it does seem to me sometimes that those are two kind of irreconcilable visions somehow, this sort of transcendent vision where all that goes away 
which is attractive in some way because it can feel very messy being caught up in my emotional life and caught up in sexual desire and caught up in all this and oh this vision that I can leave all that behind is very compelling but I was never really good at that at least you know so I don't want to be dismissive of that vision but this the other version of that which is more imminent that in that encouragement to enter into what's happening to explore what's happening to study what's happening to befriend what's happening that just seemed way, way more possible and also the liberating invitation of that is right here in the inhabiting of it rather than over there once I've managed to transcend it which um, seems to me like the uh, kind of the, the carrot and the donkey you know <laughs> 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 transcendence remains sort of remote because it's always all I've got all my my habits and delusions seem to be in the way and then it's hard work trying to get rid of habits and delusions it's much much more um, you know to actually care for one's habits and delusions you know there's what, what's that lovely phrase is it and something about um, Oh, I've, I've completely. I'll, I'll mangle it now. Maybe I'll. Maybe I'll. I'll remember it a little later. I noticed that Williams come come in to keep us on track, so I'll leave it there for now. Study the self to forget the self. It wasn't that one. It's one. That, it's about a, a delusion, being deluded about enlightenment, and being enlightened about delusion. Concern with enlightenment is delusion. Concern with delusion is enlightenment. Something like that. So it's the encouragement. That. Don't don't worry about trying to get enlightened. Yeah. Be be interested in your delusions. Come close to your delusions, because awakening is right there. You can be awake about your delusion, but you can also be very deluded about awakening. So give up being <laughs> concerned with awakening. Be concerned with your delusions, and awakening will flower in the midst of them. Yeah. Thank you so much, Martin and Willow. That was. That conversation was such a lovely invitation to thinking about what it might be to be on the path in an imminent embodied way that doesn't turn away from the messiness and the richness of our animal cells, our animal bodies. And Martin, maybe you could lead us in a short meditation as a next phase of this event before we open up for the questions and responses. Hmm, sure. So let's, you know, there's this lovely phrase, it usually translates embodied attention. It comes from the Pali, uh, yoni so manisikara. And literally, yoni, it's a little non-specific in Sanskrit or Pali, but it can be used to refer to any part or the whole of the female reproductive area. So in, the, in yoga, yoni is often translated as vagina. But here it more means womb. So yoni so manisikara literally means wombi, wombi attention. Right? Which I've, I found a very, very evocative, beautiful kind of phrase when I heard it. And it's interesting to me that, you know, for the men here, you might be feeling a bit bereft of having a womb, but we have no difficulty recognizing the difference between the heart, for example, as a physical organ, blood pump, and the heart as uh, as an energetic center right, where um, where emotional life happens. It's not that all emotion happens here, but we recognize that when we say the heart, it's like you come into the heart to meet, the, it's sort of like the energetic center of emotional life. And so this phrase of wombi attention is pointing to the fact that 
your belly, your lower belly, right? There's the womb as an organ, and it's interesting that it's also that the womb is the origin of life. The womb is that which kind of, you know, expands. And the feeling of embodied presence often has that sense of a full-bellied feel to it. So we'll just we'll just sit for a few minutes and we'll give some attention to breath in a way that's emphasizing naturalness, relaxation, but with this attention, this uh, focus on a wombly attention, letting your attention kind of rest down into your lower belly. So I'm just sitting in a way that expresses a certain dignity, noticing that you're already here, already awake. That bodily experience is very naturally available. Letting your attention be down in your belly, down below your navel. And see if you can just feel the natural swell that happens on the in-breath down here, and the natural softening. What happens with the outbreath? Letting your attention settle down in your belly, not as an act of will, but more as an act of resting. Relaxing. Relaxing into the expansiveness of the in-breath. Into the natural softening of the out-breath. to the momentary still point between breaths. Settling into your belly again and again if necessary. Sensing into the natural feel, the rhythm, the movement of breath.
using the natural expansiveness of the in-breath to a little more fully inhabit the feel of being here. Using the natural relaxation of the out-breath as a way to rest a little more fully into being here. Resting into presence, just like this. Thank you so much, Martin. There are already some really wonderful questions that are focused on practice. And I was thinking maybe we could start there. And maybe we'll start with this one. The question of But from someone who really deeply resonates with the idea that relaxation, letting go, um, is a wonderful way to get into a deeper meditative state, um, but is raising the question of when that happens for this person, it sometimes leads to a kind of disembodiment. So there can be a wonderful warmth and energy in and around one's being or heart presence, but it feels like the body is actually no longer present. Um, and this person says, doing a kind of a body scan, which in the insight world, people may be more familiar with, um, that's how this person can get into the body during a sitting. Um, and was requesting maybe either of you to address this. Is, is there something else other than the body scan that really allows one to enter into a bodily awareness? Do you want to go, Mila? Yes, there are, there are so many doorways into embodied presence other than the body scan. The body scan is a very powerful 
practice. And that practice, of course, involves going from, you know, place to place in the body and paying attention to here and then here, you know, all through throughout the body. It is a focused um, attention that's moving around the body that can result in an experience of body-mind unity, could be result in an experience of this deep relaxation that we've been talking about. Um, but there are many doorways into, into experiencing um, embodied presence. I'm, I'm using, I'm using Martin's uh, somatic mindfulness in my own case, but I, I like embodied presence and just for fun, I'm <laughs> changing it up. But yeah, I think there's many doorways into, into that. And um, some of them involve a more focused attention and some of them involve more like a diffuse attention, like your mind or your attention being the handful of salt dissolving all over the body is an example of experiencing diffuse but focused attention, diffuse attention that is relaxed and focused, has this balance of relaxation and focus. So first of all, yes, there are many doorways. Secondly, about the relaxation part, and then I, and I'll turn over to Martin to reflect on this, the relaxation part of your question. Recently, I tried a float tank, which is an isolation tank where you float on sailing and you experience, you can, this deep relaxation, embodied relaxation. But then at a certain point, because you're, there's sensory deprivation and it's dark um, and your, your, eye, your eyes are, everything is dark, there's a point where there's a kind of a pivot and you feel as if you're pu you are pure consciousness and there is no body because there's no stimulation happening. So there's this moment where it kind of pivots and you feel this sense of pure consciousness. And I, I imagine that some one way to frame that is that, oh, I'm no longer in my body. But the way that I would frame it is actually consciousness is naturally embodied in the sense that consciousness is a kind of body. Let me put it that way. We think of consciousness as being somehow totally separate from the body, but actually mind and body have never ever, while we've been alive, been separate. So um, there's a kind of an infinite consciousness that is body. Uh, the consciousness of the body of infinite sky is the way that I think of that. So I, I think it might be exploring what happens when you relax. Are you really losing touch with body? Or are you experiencing a different dimension of body? that is pure, infinite consciousness. I just put that out as a question. And I wonder, Martin, what your thought of that is, especially because both of us in both of our books go from the earth body to infinity. We both do the same trajectory. And I found that also extraordinary that we sort of end up in the same place at the end of our books. Yeah. What do you think yeah. of that? 
So I had, I had a similar thought. I, just like the, the limitation with the word mindfulness is that it's a bit mental. The limitation with talking about embodied awareness is that we might think that we mean this, by the, this shaped thing, by body. But that's only the very first sense, right? Actually, the experiential, and again, this is a term we both use independently. We talk about the difference between the conceptual body and the experiential body. And the, the, the more one comes inside the felt sense of embodied life, the less it feels this shaped, right? It, it starts to, rather than being a thing, body starts to feel like just the fluid medium of experience or the theater of experience. It might feel spherical. It might feel diffuse. It might feel formless. It might feel, I can't, there's no edge to it. There's no center to it. And so I'm wondering, uh, what's the name of the person with the question? Oh, anonymous attendee. So that doesn't help. Uh, but, um, you know, that, that sense if, of the warmth in your heart, not to take that as evidence of being disembodied because you can't feel sort of like feet and hands and that more concrete sense, but just to really enter into presence in that warmth of heart presence in that warmth of heart and see where that takes you that doesn't sound disembodied to me right it's just it's it's a um, it's a relationship to the aliveness of body and the emotional uh, life in that moment that feels very connected if you can feel what's happening that's suggestive of embodiment to me and so I wouldn't be in too much of a hurry to go back to the body scan which like Willis says can be really helpful for waking up areas of embodied experience where we habitually are a little numbed out or but again body scan can be done in a very mechanical fingers hands wrist elbow way or it can be just the sense of, of entering into the fizzing the, the aliveness of bodily life so when you're if that sense of relaxing and warm-hearted you don't you don't need to go go to a more mechanical or um, familiar sense of body. If you feel too spaced out or you get frightened, then by all means go back to a more conventional sense. But if that warmth of heart, which sounds like it is, is basically, you know, sounds beautiful, warm-hearted and present, stay, stay and explore, stay and explore. Maybe warm-hearted and present is plenty good. Thank you, Brian, for that question. So there are a few questions that bring up challenges that we have with our bodies. I think most of us at times feel embarrassed about our bodies and our, bod have, and our body images and recognize ways in which we fall short of ideas we should have about our bodies. So that is one kind of question. Like how do we relate? Are, th are, there, are there any, is there anything helpful to say about ways we can relate to a body that we don't feel as great about as we might want to. And then part of that feeling is also pain, chronic pain, that dwelling in the body, focusing on the body can make the pain that arises in the body more present to us. Um, and the third kind of area that some of the questions are addressing and because our time is limited, I'll add this to the question, and that is the way in which the body holds trauma and that really dwelling into the body 
when there's either body image or pain or the body holding the trauma, that that can be really hard. And is, is there anything to say to address that? Well, yes, I think that as soon as you go, as soon as you begin to become intimate with your bodily experience, you will encounter all of your karma. You will encounter everything that's happened to you and you will encounter um, the, the anxieties and traumas and parts of the self that are wounded, all of that is going to be encountered. You, you can't escape it if you become intimate with your bodily expression, this, this thing, this whole thing, the whole thing, because those patterns live in the body and or in, in the language of, of yogic Buddhism, they live in the subtle body which is this layer of embodiment that is energetic, or we might say in, in the science, more scientific language that our traumas live in the nervous system and they are below the layer of the thinking mind. And so when we come down and start paying attention to what's happening in our nervous system, we begin to notice how we're interacting with the world, what triggers um, are happening, that what triggers are coming into our field of experience that activate the subtle body and those patterns that rise up and again they're very present for us very alive for us now what's wonderful about intimacy with the body is even though it turns our attention more towards those traumas it also gives us a way to meet those traumas or patterns maybe i should say patterns a way to meet those patterns other than in the thinking mind because our in our culture, especially, we focus on the thinking mind is going to solve all of our problems. So, for example, cognitive behavioral therapy, which, to you know, of course, includes behavior, so includes the body, but it's possible that we can just meet those traumas, those patterns, right as they're arising in the subtle body in the present moment we can come alongside them, which is a different way of addressing them than, than asking this, you know, okay, what is the history of this pattern? Why do I feel this way? What was it that my mother did to me that made me, so not taking all of that out, or that could be very useful, but just for a moment, not doing that. And instead just meeting the trauma, meeting the pattern in the body and giving it some love, you know, surrounding it with care and that relaxation that we've been talking about here learning to relax our resistance to what's present can be a profound healing for that pattern and allow that to self-liberate in the present moment. So there are ways of addressing that, that somatic practice, body-centered meditation practice can help us with. It's not only about um, experiencing ease, it's also about experiencing the patterns in the present moment and, and inviting them into a place of ease, being, being loving towards those patterns is also a, a part of this kind of somatic direction that you, can, that you can encounter those things. So yes, all that shit that you're just, <laughs> all that stuff you're describing, you know, that just now, 
the reason to, for those things, those are a part of our practice, not something that's taking us away from our practice. All of those feelings that we have about the body, all of the stories that we have about our body, all of that is also fodder for good practice. And Martin and his book, and my, and me and my book both, we talk about body image as one of those, those um, we could say, stones that we wear around our neck, our, our, our beliefs about the body. And those need to be worked through in order to really encounter the body in the body, which is a, a this more experiential layer of embodiment. Martin, what do you have to have to add there? Yeah, you know that that you know the quality that you're highlighting, Willer, about just being being gentle with tending to tending to discomfort. Well, it's inevitably uncomfortable, and there's this sort of there's this sort of paradox where on the one hand to enter into bodily experience is to encounter all the tensions, the reluctances, the, the, the bits we don't want to feel, etc. And yet, it's also inherently good. It's inherently pleasant, actually. It's like body is happy to be alive. A body wants to be alive. And the basic feel of being alive is nourishing. It's good. It's relieving. It's happy. Right. But we, the first, the layer we taste initially may not be, probably isn't that nourishing, happy, pleasantness. It's all, it's all the layers of disconnect and fear and, and, and resistance that we've built up over time. And so you need to, you know, you need to tend to that. And I love that word to tend because it's, the root is in attention, right? But it's also in tender, right? Kind of being tender with patient with forgiving of all that stuff you've built up of course you have human conditioning right you've learned to be resistant and distracted and defended so you know to give oneself some real some tender patient attention to the going through of those layers and and then one starts to taste that it's fundamentally good and pleasant to be here and i got covid right at the beginning about a year and a half or more ago now and i've had quite a lot of effects of long covid since then so for most of the last year and a half it's i have my bodily experience is quite unpleasant i've got a lot of a lot of fatigue a lot of weird stuff that happens continually in my lungs and chest my heart rate goes all over the place and all these other things and it's been really interesting to just oh oh yeah it's like this is a kind of least semi-chronic condition that's been going on for a long time now and to be able to tend to that which is unpleasant and still to be able to taste beneath that the fundamental goodness and gladness about life here at all and that this works at all even though some bits of it seem quite dysfunctional right the very fact that we're here we start to increasingly recognize as a source of goodness and gladness so I think that bit is really, really important to tend to that which arises along the way. And if what arises along the way is too much, the person used the language of trauma, if we encounter things that are too much, you cannot meet and you cannot tend to that which is too much. That's what too much means. Too much! right? So that which is overwhelming or that one can feel is going towards overwhelming, don't try to tend to that. You can come back to that later when it's not overwhelming. Go to something you can tend to. You know? So if the sense of, oh, this is too much for me, okay. 
be respectful. It's too much. Come away and tend to oh, the feel of like your, your feet or the, just the touch of your hands on your knees when you're sitting. Right? Come to something which is not too much and tend to that. And that's a really helpful way of kind of regulating and of not trying to sort of bust through my all this stuff I've got. No, you be gentle, be respectful, be kind in the way that you meet um, what you have to practice with. Thank you, Martin. Our time is coming to an end. Willa, did you want to say something also about what in response to some of the questions about if it is too much to really focus on the body in the way that they are thinking maybe one ought to or could or that the invitation was. One question brought up, well, is there a way of extending meta to my own body or are there some initial suggestions or guidance other than reading both of your books um, for that initial stage before dwelling with the body does become pleasant to help one get there? I think Martin said it well with um, just knowing when it's too much, feeling when it's too much. And I certainly empathize with that feeling or I just in the last uh, you know, two years, there have been points um, for me personally, when things have felt like too much during the, during the pandemic and and I think at those times, you know, or when, or when our, uh, perhaps our early his trauma history is triggered, is um, caring, taking care of the self, self-care, which we may not think of as a, as a Dharma practice, but it really is. It's a, it's a fundamental Dharma practice. And so think instead of, you know, oh, I, now I need to work with this or I have to work through my, um, my, my difficult um, emotions and I have to figure out what's at the base and I need, to, I need to fix myself. Instead of I need to fix myself, I need to care for myself and what will that look like? And I think self-care is a profound Dharma practice actually, even the small things that we do to, um, to soothe the, the self and take a hot bath or um, call a friend, seek, seek support. Seeking support is a profound Dharma practice that we're not all that good at, I think sometimes, or, or we might think that, by, by, that self-care is selfish, but actually self-care is altruistic. Because if we don't care for this organism and all of its psychology, someone else is going to have to take care of it for us. So if we're taking care of that, we have freed up the others around us to, to, be, to be in a healthy relationship with us, to, be, um, to do what they need to do to contribute to the world. We have, we have not become a burden. Um, and sometimes that, is, that kind of self-care takes, takes the, takes the form of leaning on others in, in a way that is, is, is vulnerable and open. So I just 
maybe that's my my response to that. Um, Thank you so much, Willa. There are a number of really great questions and I'm sorry we don't have the time. If you are interested though, many of those questions are explored in Willa and Martin's books. I just put in the chat the links to Martin's book published by Wisdom and Willa's book published by Shambhala. There's also a question about whether or not Martin and Willa will be teaching any courses on their books. And Willa is going to be teaching a six month course with Wonderwell, who is the co-sponsor of this event. And also will be teaching at BCBS in 2023 on this theme. And Martin, this is as good a time as any to invite you to teach an online course for BCBS if you are interested exploring this theme. And before we end, I just want to say um, Martin's going to conclude with a few words and then Willa will guide us in a meditation. Before that, though, just want to say that the needs of the body include food and housing and clothing, and our teachers at BCBS are not contracted. And what supports them in their lives in meeting their needs for survival is the practice of generosity, the practice of dana, which is the first virtue on the bodhisattva path, the practice of letting go a little so that which we cling to while simultaneously meeting the most important bodily needs of others. And so personally, I find it really inspiring. It's, we live in this excessively capitalistic society and here's this practice of offering kind of outside of a contract, outside of the economic exchange. Martin and Willa and our teachers, they share their teachings out of a spirit of generosity. And at BCBS, we put these programs on, offering freely. And in the world that we live in, Willa and Martin do need to feed themselves and we need to pay our bills to keep the internet going and our staff. And so I welcome you to make a offering if you have the capacity for it, as Martin says, not too much if you're feeling economically strained. It is a practice of generosity to take up the teachings that Martin and Willa have been sharing. So you will receive a link from us at BCBS with an opportunity to make an offering to in the Zoom right now in the chat. Um, and you can make an offering to the teachers and to BCBS. And I just wanna make sure that, yes, so Willa, the, the course, um, I'm just going to share Willa's course, which is being offered by 
I just did it, William. Wonder well. Oh, you just did? Yeah. Okay. Okay. So thank you so much, everyone. And Martin, maybe you could say a few words and then we'll go to Willa for a final meditation. Sure. So firstly, just, just to follow up with William's comment about dana, and in line with the theme of the day, you know, sometimes we easily get tight around money, and maybe there's the wish to make an offering, and we think, oh, how much, etc., etc., and you'll come to whatever decision you do, but in the moment of offering, I think it's very important, dana isn't just giving a donation, it's, it's the practice of cultivating a generous heart. Buddha Court talks about it as a foundation for happiness. So please, in the moment where you click on the button and you make an offering, even it might be a very modest offering or whatever, please to connect to the felt sense of goodness. Right? It's beautiful that you're contributing to that which you value. And so for me, dana has to be an embodied practice. And rather than just thinking of the and a number and sending it, you know, connect to the fact that you 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 you're supporting us personally. You're supporting Dharma teachings. You're supporting your own love of this practice. Very very helpful. Very important to make it real in that felt way. And in turn, just to follow on from that, the whole time I'm aware that it's it's the end of year holiday time. And there's the atmosphere of celebration and etc uh, etc et and yet it's also often a difficult time of year it can be difficult to be isolated and not and uh, you know particularly if that's that might be through one's personal circumstance it might be through being estranged from family or not having family it might be from being involuntarily isolated through COVID and so that, that encouragement to tend to, to care for, to sense into, just to use the resources if they're helpful today in, in going through the holiday season. It can also be that there can be the challenges in not being isolated, but being actually up close to and with family and the various kind of historical dynamics that, that get stirred up. So on the one hand, I want to wish you the joys and blessings of the season and to wish you well through the end of the year. And on the other hand, I wanted just to wish you the kind of that, that sense of letting your practice take care of you, or actively um, set, letting the goodness of your practice sort of fill out through, uh, well, through, but through particularly through this time of year. And so just to add that into the wishing you well and appreciating everyone for, for showing up here and thanking BCBS and Willa for inviting me. Thank you, Martin. So delightful to be in conversation with you. And thank you, William, for, for being such a graceful host for us and Julia for being behind the scenes. So we're going to conclude here with just a short uh, sit and coming. We started with the body and just returning to the body. Mm. He's taking some time to come home right now to the panorama of your felt experience. Taking a deep inhale and exhale into openness. Feeling body open, 
ears open, senses open. Mind open. Heart falling open like a blooming lotus. In the spirit of openness. Letting go of holding on to anything whatsoever, even the merit of our practice. Giving rise to an aspiration to pay it forward for the benefit of all. May your body be wakeful. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.